This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Scott Cunningham and is part four of our Advent 2016 series. Have you ever been walking somewhere or on a hike or something and seen something that just takes your breath away? You just have to stop. Um, I used to work with a youth ministry and one time took about 15 teenagers backpacking in the Rocky Mountains, which was terrifying as it sounds, for about seven days. And deep into the trip, deep up in the, the, the rocky wilderness, uh, I was up early one morning preparing some stuff before all the students got up, was standing at the edge of this gorgeous, misty meadow at sunrise. It was completely quiet. And then all of a sudden, a massive mother moose and her calf just stepped out of the, the forest right in front of me. And as you would have done, I'm sure, I was just, <gasps> I just took my breath away. Because it was so beautiful, also because moose can kill you, and I knew that, and so I was terrified a little bit. But it was absolutely gorgeous. The moose just looked right at me. I could see its breath, you know, in the cold weather. And there was two other guides that were up as well, and they didn't see it. And so I tapped them as quietly as I could. Guys, look. You know, and they got up, we're going to say something. I was like, shh, shh, look at this. And they both had the exact same reaction. So sitting next to me, they just went, oh. And we just watched this moose and her calf in the middle of a rocky sunrise slowly just walk away. I will never forget it. It was a mystery. One of my favorite names the Bible gives Christians, and this is a, such an amazing name, is Stewards of the Mysteries of God. Isn't that epic? Stewards of the Mysteries of God. The next time you're on a plane and somebody's there and's like, so what do you do? I dare you to say, well, actually, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God, and see their reaction. <laughs> Crazy as that sounds, that's what we are, because Christianity doesn't revolve around a philosophy or a specific line of thinking. Everything in Christianity revolves around things that God has done, things that have happened, times in the world of history where God has shocked and surprised us, and they're mysteries, and we steward them. We go, oh. we protect them, we carry them with us, we pass them down to our children. We tap others on the shoulder and say, dude, look, look at this. And Christmas is one of the chief mysteries of our faith. Your calendar, our clock, everything is literally set in relation to when this happened. It snapped history into two pieces when Jesus was born. So on this freezing Sunday morning, which will just get colder and colder and colder as the day goes on, all I want us to do is to shake off the dust off of the mystery of the incarnation so that we can see it afresh. Some of the things I'll say this morning you might have heard before, if you're new to Christianity, the things that we're going to talk about are very central to our faith. But it's my prayer that we would all be able to once again overcome the formidable enemy of familiarity, of just feeling like, yeah, this is just another thing, and be shocked, have our breath taken away by what's happening. The core of the mystery of Christmas in this passage really revolves around the two names that, that is given to Jesus, Jesus and Emmanuel. And so this morning, everything, we want to focus in, what do these names teach us about this mystery and who the person of Jesus is? That's what we're going to do. 
So to begin, uh, before we get to these names, I want to give it a little background for what's going on in this passage. This is the second half of Matthew chapter 1, which is the first uh, book of the New Testament. And if you have your Bible open and you're looking at this, you'll notice that the first part of chapter 1 is all a genealogy. So why does Matthew start like this? Well, Matthew is really, really, he really wants you to see that Jesus is the yes, the great answer to all the prophecies and stories of the Old Testament. And so he starts with a genealogy to show that he's in connection to David and Abraham. Because there's this big old prophecy that the Messiah would come from the line of David. But there's a conundrum in this passage. There's kind of a problem because the genealogy is traced by fatherhood. And the passage clearly tells us that Joseph is not the father. So the question is, who's the father of this child, and how does he come from the line of David? Does that make sense? These days, the, the birth uh, text announcement, like the, the text message for when a, you know, a baby is born, is kind of almost like an institution. There's a lot of babies at res, so you guys know what I'm talking about. Basically, you know somebody who is in their ninth month of pregnancy, and then one day you get a text message that says, so-and-so's water just broke, and they're going to the hospital. And then my wife freaks out and screams, and like, I'm worried about what's happened in my apartment. But then after that happens, the real waiting starts. And you guys know what I'm talking about. Then you just have this painful day where you're not knowing what's going on and you're just waiting to hear. And then you get the second text message, which is blankety blank blank was born on such and such a time, so and so ounces and pounds, and his or her name means this. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. What's happening in this story is that Mary is pregnant, but not by Joseph even though they're engaged. And the Bible says that Joseph, no doubt filled with pain and confusion that any of us would be, resolves to divorce her quietly because the Bible says he's a just man. But an angel visits him in a dream and basically says to him in verses 20 and 22, don't fear Joseph. I'm actually going to go ahead and show you and give you that birth announcement text message that you're going to send out. So he says, Mary will bear a son and you're going to name him Jesus. And don't worry that you aren't the father, for that which is in her is conceived from the Holy Spirit. So go ahead, take her as your wife. The two things that would make Mary's baby a legitimate successor to the line of David is one, if Joseph actually married Mary, and two, if he named this baby. And verses 24 and 25 of this little passage, you can see it, it's almost like a bow at the end of it. Joseph did both things out of obedience to the Lord. But before Matthew ends, he tells us that this baby, whom the angel declared would be named Jesus, would also be the bearer of another name, and that is Emmanuel. And like I said at the beginning, the core of this mystery that we want to shake the dust off of and see afresh is in these two names, Jesus and Emmanuel. I actually want to talk about Emmanuel first, for reasons I'll talk about later. So let's look at the name of Emmanuel first. If you've got your Bible or your bulletin, open it up. I want you to read this with me. It's in verse 22 or 23. I'll give you a second. So starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. All this, the birth of Christ, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The passage that Matthew quotes from here comes from the book of Isaiah in chapter 7, which was actually uh, the Old Testament reading we had today. 
And even though people probably didn't call Jesus Emmanuel, you know, down at the carpenter's shop and stuff, this is the fulfillment to this really powerful prophetic image from way back when, that God would bring his presence down to be with his people. So a way to understand this, it's almost like Emmanuel is a title or a role that has been hanging in the air for ages and ages, waiting for somebody to come and assume it. Matthew is pointing for us very clearly, saying, look, this is it. This is the child born of the virgin who shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And I want to say two things about this name. So two things about Emmanuel. The first is this, that this baby is truly God with us. The child who is called by the name Emmanuel is not part God. He's not a good reflection of God. He doesn't just have bits of God. He is God. Matthew 1 is very clear, even repeats itself twice, that this child has been conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. The book of Colossians says twice that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness. Elsewhere, the Bible calls him the image of the invisible God and the exact imprint of his nature. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. I've gotten into multiple conversations with uh, people about religion and the blind guys and the elephant. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? That kind of, yeah, I get some, some nods here. Basically, the argument is that you can't know fully about God or the eternal because we're like blind men and women only touching part of the elephant. And I've always wondered, where does that come from? Did that like happen at some point, you know? Anyways, it's very pervasive though. And in a way, I totally get it and I understand it because since humanity, since any of us have existed, the history of the human race, we have always lived with a sense of the unknowable. The infinite mystery of something that there must be something beyond this. There must be something or someone behind the vastness of the universe, the vastness of our own created human spirit and everything that we feel and think and go through. And every culture has had their own ways of grasping for that, of expressing it or groping for it. And we have all wondered. And sometimes even the quote-unquote most unspiritual person might feel like there's a time in his or her life where part of that world, the eternal, the mysterious, the unknowable, whatever's behind all this, exposes itself. Like all of a sudden, you glimpse the eternal, but it might just be part of it. So the argument, how, how do you know about everything that's behind it? The Bible is very clear about the mystery of Emmanuel. The child is not part God. All of the expanse of the unknowable dwells in this little baby. All of it. It's all in the manger. God says in the Old Testament that he dwells in a high and lofty place. And so that's the first mystery about Emmanuel, is that that God dwells fully in this child. What a mystery. The second thing I want to say about the mystery of Emmanuel is that he is God with us. God with us. There's a tradition in uh, kind of culture and religion and history of gods being able to kind of come down and take on the form of something, like shapeshift or something like that. So Greek gods sometimes take on the form of an animal or another object or whatever and, and come down. 
The Bible is very clear that this child called Emmanuel, who is fully an all God, did not just take the form of humanity like temporarily in the sense of just dressing up like a human for a little while. No, he was born of Mary, and just as he was fully God, was fully man, fully human. Um, Many of us growing up in the church have been on short-term mission trips. Some of you guys might have done that before. I've been on a few myself. Basically, you've got a week or two where you go somewhere where they're in need that's different than our community, and we serve them. And typically when I've been on those, the leaders or the people who are with me encourage me to kind of immerse myself in their way of life. So yeah, live, live like they do. Eat what they eat, eat what they eat, all that kind of stuff. And it's really profound and moving. But typically, at least for me, there's a suitcase, and you've got like your phone and all some other food stashed away, and so you get home at night and kind of enjoy the amenities of your normal life. The mystery of God with us is that the incarnation of Emmanuel was not a short-term mission trip. Jesus didn't shapeshift into human form for a while until he did what he wanted to and then leave. He didn't serve the world as Jesus born of Mary and then at 5 p.m. kind of go back to his like old way of living. No, Emmanuel, this child became fully one of us. The Bible says in Hebrews that he was made like us in every respect with the exception that he was without sin. So that means he laughed He suffered, he got splinters from carpentry, he went through puberty, everything. And he did this once for all so that even when he died and rose again, he walked out of the tomb with his glorified body, his human body, just as we will all do one day because of him. So humanity was not just a husk that he wore for a while and then just threw off. That is the mystery of this child who Matthew and all the saints are gathering around and pointing at, looking at, saying, look, this is it. This is Emmanuel. He's God, fully. All of the expanse of the unknown, the infinite mysteries are fully in this little child. And yet he is God with us. So it's God in the high and lofty place, stooping down to become fully growing pains, warts and all, human, to become one of us. We carol about this all the time. You could be in J.C. Penney and you could hear this. But does that shock us? Do we believe that? What a mystery, right? What a name. Emmanuel. And that's the first of the two names. But now I want to work back in this passage. Talk about the second one. Because I want to suggest to you this morning that Emmanuel, if left alone by itself is not the fullness of Advent joy. And that alone by itself, it might not even be worth celebrating. Why? Because God could be with us for a number of purposes and in a number of ways. He could be with us only in fire and brimstone. He could be with us only in wrath. He could be with us like a Greek God who's just coming to kind of take from humanity and bitter sensuality. Emmanuel is only gospel, good news, if when God comes to be with us, his name is Jesus. If you do not believe that God has come to save you from your sins, the last thing you want is God with us. Emmanuel is good news if when God comes, his name is Jesus. What do I mean by that? 
Well, in the Old Testament, God comes really close to a few people, and they all have the same exact reaction, fear. Think about Moses in the burning bush. Think about the visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel when they're brought super close into the presence of the Lord. Think about the people of Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai. When you realize that God is in your midst, you fall on your face. And in most of those situations, that emotion of terror is quickly followed by the emotion of, I am unclean. I am sinful in the presence of a holy God. So in fact, Israel, the people of God, who loved the Lord, when they were at the bottom of, the, of Mount Sinai, they were overcome with these emotions so much that they just told Moses, man, you gotta, you got to go talk to God for us. We want to keep our distance. We can't even endure this. It's an awesome thing in the old way of using the word awesome to come into the presence of the living God. So think about it. All of this just adds to the mystery, to the shock of Christmas. Because what are the first words that the angels say to Mary, Joseph, Zachariah, the shepherds, everybody? Fear not. Fear not. Tidings of joy for all men and women. The angels tell the people to fear not because this baby, who is the one to claim the title of Emmanuel, his name is Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua, which in Hebrew sounds like Yeshua, and it basically means God saves God saves. And the angel for Joseph and for us helpfully kind of unpacks the meaning of this name. So, like Emmanuel, I want to say two things about the name of Jesus. First, one of the things that must continually remain a mystery for us is that Jesus came to save. We can't take that for granted just because we're so familiar with it. What a mystery. In the fullness of time when Jesus was born of Mary, humanity might have needed saving but we were not deserving of saving, right? Did you know that the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi? And in Malachi, things are not good. I mean, the people, both priests and people are dishonoring God. They're turning towards other idols. They doubt the love of God. They're like, it's not worth loving God anyways because it never does anything good for us. That's literally what's happening in this last book. And God warns the people that, quote, there is a great and terrible day coming, burning like an oven, when God is going to come and visit his people. And our Old Testament finishes with God saying this, I'm going to send Elijah ahead of me to prepare the way. And then he says, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's how the Old Testament ends. It's like this massive, massive cliffhanger. This unresolved question mark of impending doom. And after that, you get 400 years of silence until you get to Matthew 1 and the birth of Jesus. Think about it. That God would come as Emmanuel, as a baby, in order to save his people. Even all the people like you and I who doubt the love of God, dishonor God, have done all kinds of things. Who could have imagined that? Instead of judging the people through destruction, which is the word that the Old Testament hangs on, he became one of us in order to be destroyed himself. That is a mystery. Of course, the Old Testament had this hope deep within it and had prophesied it, but nobody was expecting this. 
What a shock. What a mystery. What beautiful, beautiful, good news. Fear not. God is with you and among you to save. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to say about this name, Jesus, is right there in your Bible. So look at your bulletin or your your Bible with me. Look at verse 21. This is precious airtime that an angel says something about who this baby is into all of our world and experience. This is a declaration. And what the angel says is not long. And this is how he unpacks this name. So look at verse 21. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From their sins. There's a story later on during Jesus' life where he's teaching in the middle of this house. And it's pretty familiar. Some of you guys might know it. But everybody loves Jesus, and so they're packing in. They're in the doors. They're blocking the windows, everything. And these epic guys who are such awesome friends want their paralytic friend to get healed so bad that they drill a hole in the middle of the roof and lower him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith, and he looks at the paralytic and says, Man, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's like, Huh? What are you talking about? I'm pretty sure we didn't even ask. We wanted you to heal his body. We weren't asking you to forgive his sins. And by the way, who are you that you think you can heal or forgive sins? The people were offended and shocked. And Jesus used that moment to teach them about his uh, chief purpose of his mission. But in a way, that's like a little analogy of what is going on here on a macro level. So the people are in Roman captivity. They're suffering. Things are not good. And this baby is born, Emmanuel, whose name is Joshua, like the Joshua of the Old Testament. And I can imagine that the people are thinking, this child is going to pick up a sword and vanquish the enemies of the people of God, just like Joshua did. What a shock. What a surprise. Then and now, that Jesus doesn't come to save you from your enemies. He didn't say, for he will save Israel from its enemies, from the Romans. He's come to save me from my sins, you from your sins. He's come to vanquish forever the things that separate you from the love of God, that things that keep you in captivity and bondage. Not the Romans, your sins, my sins. Of course, who Jesus is and what he did goes far beyond just being forgiven. Jesus came to restore the entire created order, to renew it. Nothing less, praise God. But the angel is really clear, and Jesus even confirms this later in his ministry, that this child, whose name is God saves, would bring a salvation that is based on salvation from our sins. Not the liberal sins, not the conservative sins, not your family's sins, not your boss's sins, my sins, your sins. Let me try to get at this a little bit. Um, My brother one time moved to a community that didn't steward this mystery well. And so they kind of lost the back end of the meaning of Jesus, of salvation from sins. And it was really hard for my brother because... The problem with the world, the things that Jesus saves us from, the the center of gravity there shifted to other things. And so the deep things that we all do that separate us from the love of God, things that we've done to others, things that others have done to us, the thing that really needed fixing in the human race was left untouched. 
And that was a hard experience. But then my brother moved to this different community where this, the mystery of this was stewarded well. And he heard it. And my brother, who knows the gospel very well, one day called me. And I asked him how he was doing. And he said, man, in tears, the gospel is about forgiveness of sins. It's like he heard it again. All of a sudden, the mystery was shocking him, just like the moose coming out of the forest. The deepest things that separate us from the love of God, from one another, that are the real issue, was being tapped into again. Jesus has come to save us from our sins. What a mystery. What a shock. So, what do we learn from these two names about this central happening in all of human history? This child is fully God. It's all there. And yet, he is fully one of us. He condescended and stooped down and became one of us. And he came in order to save us, to liberate us from our sins, to reach into, to speak truth, like Stuart was praying earlier in this service, into your deepest parts and liberate you there, to bring healing there. What a mystery. So I want to turn full circle back to that beautiful phrase, stewards of the mysteries of God. As followers of Jesus, we are meant to be stewards, sacred keepers, protectors of this mystery. They didn't happen because of us. A philosopher wasn't sitting at his desk one day and wrote this up. There wasn't a sage in deep meditation that thought it all up. They happened by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the will of God before the foundation of the world. But they've been entrusted to us. You even see that in the book of Acts. Everybody's just like, listen, man, this just happened. I saw it. And that's been stewarded, passed on, passed on. And we are the sacred keepers, the stewards of those mysteries. We get to tap others on the shoulder. We get to be witnesses and say, shh, look, do you see that? Um, my friend John Clark, who goes to this church, some of you guys might know him, he actually wrote a book on the incarnation, which is really awesome. And in this wonderful book, he makes this point that false teaching always seeks to solve or do away with the mysteries of God. Always revolves Again, because it's about something that happens, false teaching is going to come in and try to figure out a way that that didn't actually happen, or it wasn't what the Bible says it is. So, for example, people have said it wasn't fully God, part of the elephant. Uh, he was just a normal dude. He had a real dad. Or they'll say, no, he actually wasn't ever really fully human like us. He was just very high spiritual figure or teacher or whatever. Sometimes we have a tendency to, to really lock in and kind of not fully steward this mystery by just focusing on one of the things. So we love how empathetic Emmanuel is, but we don't move from there to the salvation from our sins. The mysteries are not neutral. They're not pleasantries. They actually challenge us and shock us just as much as we come to be behold it and love it and protect it. So in the Bible, you do have lots of people who come up and creep up from far away to the manger and have their breath taken away. But in the very next chapter, Matthew 2, you have other people trying with all their power to obliterate this mystery. Herod is doing everything he can to rid the world of the mystery of the incarnation. 
So I just want to leave you with the thought. What does it look like for you to steward this mystery throughout the rest of this, Christi- this Christmas season? To carry it with you, to protect it, to just have your breath taken away again and just look at it. To tap others on the shoulder. Look. Look at that. To shake the dust off of this thing where it's not just like a normal part of the Christian furniture, but we see it for what it is, which is the mystery that broke the back of all of time itself. We are stewards of this mystery. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.